This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The first lesson is from Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Holy wisdom, holy word. The second lesson is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, though the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Holy wisdom, holy word. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, I was driving to a meeting in a nearby city, and as I approached the city limits, I passed through a cluster of office buildings situated together in an industrial park. They presented themselves as a veritable citadel of no-nonsense business in which cold, hard reason and efficiency were paramount. They were functionally built for that purpose. Architecture of straight lines, flat surfaces, large windows. And suddenly, suddenly I saw something that was totally inefficient and 
quite beyond the praxis of reason. There in the midst of this gathering of monuments to human productivity was a sign covering several windows in foot-high dark print that read, Happy Anniversary, Julie, I Love You. It was so odd to the context, so totally beyond the reach of computers and calculations. Julie, I love you. That sign in the window stuck out from its surroundings to bear witness to something more enduring and fundamental than all we ever have or ever will invent or manufacture, more than the reckonings of human wisdom. And so it is with the cross and all it stands for. The cross is odd to the context of human striving. It transcends human wisdom to such a degree that many regard it as foolishness. The mystery of the cross is the mystery of love itself. That unknown man's love for his wife, Julie, broadcast for all to see is a reminder of all human loves for spouses, for parents and children, for lovers, friends and colleagues, and for all relationships marked by care and gratitude. These human loves throb with the pulse beat of life, and they gladden our hearts. Or, when gone awry, drive us to tears, for the importance of love is sadly often best understood when it fails and results in pain or self-doubt or even depression. But these human loves, imperfect and sometimes too fragile to endure, are nonetheless a window to the love of God revealed in the cross. The mystery of the cross is the mystery of love itself. Love is the foolishness of the cross. To love another, you know, of course, is to give up control and entrust yourself to their affections. It is risky. Yet despite that, our, despite our instincts for self-protection and self-concern, we seek love to the extent that we can relinquish our desire to control the other and control our desire to serve and center things on ourself. To that extent, love happens, however flawed. Such self-giving is, by all accounts, foolishness when it's opposed, in contrast, to controlling everything in your life and satisfying your personal desires as first priority, or so it would seem. But the unparalleled self-giving love of Christ all the way to the cross is the foolishness of a loving God who is ready to relinquish control in order to love us rather than to overwhelm us and tyrannize us with divine power. As we take our Lenten journey toward the denouement of Jesus' passion on the hill called Golgotha, we may wonder why God chose this route. Did God choose the cross? or simply allow Jesus to give himself up to the prevailing brutality and cruelty preferred by his persecutors. 
We shall never know for sure, for sure this side of glory. But what we do know, what we do know is that the crucifixion of Jesus, in that crucifixion, God was at work in the depths of the divine life. And as a result, the cross has become the symbol of God who shares our sufferings at the deepest level of pain and death in order to bring us to life. This, Paul tells us, is the wisdom of God. It is wisdom so transcendent that it seems like foolishness to those who have not yet seen the truth of themselves in the light of the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian and Christian martyr, said it this way, The truthfulness of the disciple has its sole basis in following Jesus, in which he reveals our sins to us on the cross. Only the cross, as God's truth about us, makes us truthful. Those who know the cross no longer shy away from any truth. So what Bonhoeffer is saying is that seeing the truth of our sinful selves in the truth of the cross sets us free free from self-deception, free from self-concern, free to accept God's forgiveness with grateful hearts, free to pursue the foolishness of self-giving love. The love of God that shines from the cross of Christ also casts light on how we are to relate to the covenant at Sinai. In our Old Testament reading from Exodus, the tables of the law are given as an essential feature of the life of the covenant people. These are the Ten Commandments as we have come to know them. They have become a familiar public code for what is right and wrong before God. They are an approved, handy moral summary of righteous conduct toward our neighbors and even It's even thought that way by some people who don't believe in God. And some scholars have seen their influence in the formulation of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Now, of course, we all know that the commandments are a major part of our catechisms and our confirmation instruction. I recall my confirmation instruction. My pastor was a dedicated and kind soul. But while teaching the commandments, he was given to a kind of finger-shaking moralism with dire warnings about our behavior. And when teaching the creed and the second article about Jesus' saving work, he was all grace and gospel. My instinct even then was that somehow the commandments in the gospel had to be connected and understood in terms of one another. And we see that connection even in the covenant at Sinai. The law is given. It is prefaced, however, with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The covenant is first and foremost about God's gracious deliverance. The exodus is the gospel of the Hebrew scriptures. The commandments then are seen as the way of life 
for the people's flourishing. They are not set down as rules by which people can become God's chosen people. God has already achieved and chosen, has already delivered and chosen them. The commandments set down a path for their new life. And this is symbolized dramatically by the fact that the tables of the law were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the symbol of God's mercy and covenant promise of deliverance. Thus, the commandments are given and received encased, encased in God's grace and mercy. That they judge us when we fail their directives is because we are sinful beings, not because their basic purpose is judgment. Their basic purpose is to show the way of life for those whom God has given the gift of life. They are crafted by the same divine love revealed in its ultimate expression in the cross. Those zealous officials who want to display the Ten Commandments in town halls or capital buildings fail to see that they have their true meaning only in the context of God's grace. Apart from that, they are just another moral code that appeals to human reason and moral aspiration. Their focus then is on the accomplishments of human beings rather than the grace and guidance of God. Jesus would later deepen the meaning of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Moreover, he would summarize the law as love for God and love for neighbor. This is a command, the love commandment. It is a way of self-giving love, however, made possible by the love of God revealed in the foolishness of the cross. Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He does not say become salt and become light. He says you are salt and light. Now be salt and be light. And this is what Augustine, St. Augustine, understood in his famous little prayer, command what you will and give what you command. Augustine was saying, it is by the grace of God that we can embrace God's commands as possibilities for our life. So the cross and the covenant are connected Both are born of the self-giving love of God that leads the way to new and abundant life driven by love. God commands love and loves us into the loving that God commands. God commands love and loves us into the loving that God commands. The foolishness of the cross stands in contrast to the prideful claims of human wisdom just as the sign in the window professing love for Julie stood in contrast to its surroundings. It was odd to that context. And we, we who see in the foolishness of the cross our hope of salvation, we are also odd to the context of this world. Instead of self-promotion, we choose self-giving love. Instead of self-centeredness, we choose self-giving love.
Instead of self-protection, we choose the risks of self-giving love. Instead of worldly power that seeks to dominate, we invoke the power of self-giving love that sets us free to serve. In short, we are called to be a sign in the window, proclaiming in large letters, in large letters of word and deed, the foolishness of the cross as the hope of the world. So be it. Amen.